today. As perhaps you've gathered already, we are in the midst of a series that we are calling Dangerous Prayers. And so what we've been looking at, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, is prayers like, search me, O God, and know my heart, or lead me in the way everlasting, or teach me your truth, O Lord. Last weekend, Pastor Randy just delivered a really powerful message, break me. And someone was saying to me this morning, man, I've never even heard of that kind of prayer but it was exactly what they needed to hear. So Pastor Randy, thanks for that powerful message and your sharing as well. God is good. Uh, this week, we're going to kind of start tr- uh, closing out the series, you might say, in the next few weeks with prayers like send me and transform me, and one last one in a few weeks, grow me. And our send me prayer is based out of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, and it's these words. We heard the first part of the message a little bit earlier, this chapter, about Isaiah being in the throne room of God, being in the presence of God Almighty with his robe filling the temple with angels all around him. And it led up to this moment uh, where God had cleansed his lips and his heart and his mind. He'd forgiven his sins through that coal on the altar, through the tongs. And I don't know about you, but every time I read and hear that, I cringe a little bit because I don't like to feel burned, right? And uh, sunburns are bad enough. Imagine a flaming coal on your lips, but it, it was intended to purify him, and that's what happened. And, and it led him to this moment. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? This is the voice of God. And who will go for us? And Isaiah, just kind of filled with the Spirit, fired up and ready to go, puts his hand up and says, then I said, here I am, send me. Now, some of you guys know this weekend is the Super Bowl weekend, right? I'm just real curious, those in your room, how many of you are going to be for the Rams today? Just a few of you. Okay, a few Rams fans. Not that many. It seems true. How about Bengals, right? Okay, a bunch of Bengals fans. So I'm I'm just wondering how many of them are because they're like sore over the fact that the Bears and the Packers aren't in the Super Bowl. And so they're like, we're going to go for the underdog. Like, I don't know. I don't have a skin in the fight. So um, uh, whoever wins, wins. That's going to be a good day tonight. Uh, What's that? It's the year of the tiger. Okay, there we go, Lee. I didn't know that. All right, maybe that's going to mean something. But um, uh, whether or not you care about the game uh, or even have played organized sports, you probably know that the, the speech that the coach gives <clears throat> to the team before the game is kind of a big deal, right? You want to get your team fired up. You want to get them focused. Whether it's football or basketball, volleyball, it may be true for water polo and downhill skiing. I don't know for sure. But, um, but you can understand the importance of like a pregame uh, pep talk to get a team fired up and ready to go. My, my mental picture of this moment is that Isaiah has kind of had that sort of moment where he is ready to go do whatever it is that God is going to call him to do. Like he is excited, he is connected, he is refreshed, he is redeemed, he is restored. He's like, God, whatever you want me to do, go ahead and send me. I'm ready to go. What he may not have been prepared for, though, was exactly what God had in mind. All right, take a look at what Isaiah was actually sent to do. This is kind of a verse that summarizes the message he was sent to deliver as a prophet. It says, make the hearts of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their ears, eyes and ears, sorry, and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. Right? The message that Isaiah was sent to deliver was one of challenge, of confrontation, for a nation, a people of God who had wandered off of the right path and his ministry, his purpose was to call them out on it, was to challenge them through this message. 
And so here he was, all fired up and ready to go, and God said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go make a bunch of people mad. I want you to uh, confront them in their sin, and ultimately for the purpose of revealing a Savior. But can you imagine for Isaiah, he's like, all right, God, okay? I wasn't really aware that that's what I was signing up for, but here I am, send me. We're going to talk today about how praying this send me prayer can sometimes make us uncomfortable, push us out of our comfort zone, and, and maybe even cause us to be afraid, um, terrified, and certainly unsettled, but nonetheless is a prayer that God is inviting us to pray. It's interesting, if you fast forward a few centuries, you know, Isaiah's life and ministry is now behind him. He is dead and gone. He's in the grave. And John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, uh, still knew about him, still paid attention to him, and said this in, uh, in John chapter 12. Isaiah said these things, and he had just quoted that verse I just showed you from chapter 6, verse 10 in Isaiah, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, as I read John's gospel, I think what he is saying here is that Isaiah, somehow or another, actually had seen uh, Jesus. Before he took on human flesh, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, so not just the Father in the throne room, but somehow or another, in the midst of this vision, he had seen Christ himself. And what we know for sure from Isaiah's book is that he predicted, perhaps more than any other Old Testament prophet, the coming Savior. So you have, for example, chapter 7, verse 14, uh, and, and it's the Emmanuel prophecy right? A virgin shall give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Or chapter 9, verse 6, and you shall call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know those from the Christmas season, right? And you may also know that eventually uh, Isaiah was to deliver some words of hope. In chapter 40, verse 1, for example, a big turn in Isaiah's prophecy, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Right? And then in Isaiah 52 and 53, we, we read this often in Good Friday and Lent, he describes how this Savior who would come to bring comfort uh, needed to suffer and to die. And remember, by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah had foretold. So John tells us that Isaiah's ministry was crucially important, that he had actually been given a glimpse of God himself, maybe even Christ, before he took on human flesh. Uh, but we know that his ministry was a challenge because of the message he was sent to bring. And we also know that the same was true for Jesus. For John goes on to say, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, a particular sect within Judaism in the first century, uh, they did not confess it. For they loved the glory of God that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the same kind of resistance, maybe even outright hostility and opposition that Isaiah faced in his day, John tells us Jesus experienced too. And if you've read through the Gospels, you know that was the case. Uh, wherever he went from the very beginning of his ministry, there were crowds that would gather, but among them would be spies for the rulers and the authorities. It would be people trying to set traps for him and his word, and then eventually conspiring to uh, bring trumped-up charges against him, get him arrested, tried, crucified, killed, and that was what he was up against because they were resistant to the message that even the Son of God had come to bring to the world. Now, in the midst of John's gospel... Uh, we also hear this word. This was our second reading this morning. Thanks, Lee, for your reading. Um, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, 
right before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, he prays to the Father in the presence of his disciples these words. He says, as you sent me into the world, speaking to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. So Isaiah the prophet Here's the call from God, gets sent. The Son of God, Jesus, is sent into the world, and He has come specifically to send us as His disciples to do the work that He has called us to do. Last weekend, when I was up at the Lake Geneva youth camp with our youth, um, I had an opportunity to talk to one of the camp directors there about discipleship and how they were working on new strategies to make disciples, and I was sharing with him some of what we're doing here. And, and he gave me this kind of super simple summary of the discipleship pathway we see in the Gospels. And I wanted to share it with you um, because it's important for us to know how exactly Jesus calls and sends us. It's interesting, the first call to discipleship comes probably earlier than maybe most of us would have expected. It's in John chapter 1, verse 39. Jesus is there by the Jordan River. John, his relative, is baptizing Right? And he says of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember that part? Right? And, and then he says that because some of John's own disciples were starting to pay attention to Jesus. And so a few of them began to literally follow wherever Jesus was walking. He turns around and he says, Hey guys, what's up? Right? Not in literally those words, but that was essentially what he said. And they said, We want to see where you are staying. And Jesus' first invitation to discipleship to these men was, Come and see. Before he invites them to do anything, he says, just come, take a look at who I am, uh, where I go, what I do, what I say, and, and if you are drawn to me in that way, then there will be another step in your discipling journey. Matthew chapter 4, uh, a short while later, these same disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, are fishing in the Sea of Galilee, that was their profession, and Jesus shows up on the shore one day, it's early morning, they'd spent all night and they had not caught a thing right? Economically disastrous, as well as frustrating for them. Jesus says, hey, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? Uh, so random rabbi on the beach says to the professional fisherman, here's how you should do your job. You can imagine some of the thoughts in their minds, but Peter says, all right, Lord, whatever you say, we're going to do it. Let's down the net. You know how the story goes, right? Catches an amazing amount of fish, and Peter's life was forever changed. And Jesus said then, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So in a similar way, he, he begins to gather his 12 disciples and begins to train them in his words and ways so that they could become like him. That's what a disciple is and does. A short while later, Jesus says something interesting, Matthew chapter 9. Some of you may remember this from the fall. I share this as part of our fall series, Core, where we're talking about four words that define our ministry and our community in this season, words like community and boldness and joy. We love to celebrate and give thanks. And another one is empowering. And I shared with you how when I was reading in the early months of 2021 through Matthew's gospel, uh, this verse really just stood out to me at the end of chapter 9 where Jesus says, um, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Right? And I showed you this picture back in the fall. And I shared with you how when I was reading that in the beginning of 2021, uh, these words just really stuck in my heart. And I felt like God was saying, Micah, I want you to pray this prayer, but in a specific way. Because Jesus goes on to say this next, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. All right, the harvest is already ready. I just need some people to go out and join me in bringing it in. And, and what I've been praying for the last year and pray that you would join with me too is a specific application of this prayer. Uh, not just 
professional uh, pastors and teachers and church workers, women and men who go on and get training and go and, and have jobs in a church setting. But what would it look like if every girl and boy and woman and man in the St. Peter family saw themselves as having a hand in this harvest? Um, in their own unique way, wherever they live, work, and play, what if every single one of you listening today and everyone who's part of the St. Peter family says, actually, Jesus wants to send me? Maybe not as a full-time church worker, but, but maybe my job is just as important uh, in his kingdom work. Now, pay attention to what Jesus does next, right? He, he says to his disciples, pray for the Lord of the harvest, me, to send out people into his harvest field, and then he, he answers his prayer in a certain way. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this, and Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority, pay attention to that, we'll come back a little later, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Right, so Jesus gathers his 12 closest friends, they've been with him now for around about a year, right, still early in his public ministry, and he says, now I want you to go and preach and heal, just like you've seen me do these last few months. And he gives them his authority to do that, along with some specific instructions. Uh, he limits their focus to the people of the lost sheep of Israel for that time. Gentiles would come later. Uh, but he says, I want you to go out and just put into practice what you've seen and heard. I want you to proclaim as you go the same message that I've been proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want you to note this, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. That's a pretty bold set of instructions, don't you think? Right? Imagine you're one of those 12, and you're like, we've only been in school for like a year, and you're telling us to go raise dead people back to life. Right? You're, you're expecting us to cleanse lepers and, and heal and cast out demons. But remember, Jesus had given them his authority to do those things. So as I envision the picture... Uh, what Jesus said to do, they just went out and started to do, and, and, and it raises this question. What do you think it was like? I would imagine it was thrilling, exhilarating, right, to actually begin to do imperfectly, right, they weren't fully formed, imperfectly what they'd seen the Lord and Savior, the God of the universe do in their presence. They were able to put into practice what they'd already seen and heard from him. It must have been thrilling. Some of you, um, earlier when Sarah asked about a mission experience, maybe you remember that moment where you have just completely dedicated a few hours or a few days or maybe even a few weeks to serving others, to using uh, the skills and the abilities, the passions you have for the well-being of others. Maybe you remember just how exciting that can be. Right? Whether it's serving in a local food kitchen or community threads, a thrift shop, or whether it's uh, participating in some other local community service, just that moment where you're like, this is like the most fully alive I've been. And, and you thought that was amazing. I imagine that's kind of like what it was for the disciples, but probably even more, because again, most of us don't cast out demons or raise dead to life. So that's like another level. But, but nonetheless, just remember that moment. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Here's the question. What if that was an everyday experience? What if for you it wasn't just a once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-while or once-a-year sort of thing where you dedicate some time and some days and energy towards joining Jesus in his mission? What if you saw every relationship you inhabit, where you live, work, and play, your friends and neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, the people you meet in the store and on the street, what if you saw them 
as the people that God is calling you to love and to serve, to bring good news to, to show a little hope and life to? What if every day can be like this little missionary journey the disciples went on? Just imagine how alive you would feel. Now, it wasn't just thrill and excitement the disciples had at that time. Because in his instructions, Jesus goes on to warn them with these words, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say to these kind of newly authorized, like one year into their learning and training disciples, watch out, you're going to face some attack and hostility and opposition. See, here's why I think Jesus warns them of this. From the very moment we come to faith in Jesus, whether through water and the word like with Willow today or having heard the preaching of God's word or reading it on your own in scripture and then just feeling that transformation within as the Holy Spirit takes over your life, as soon as you do that, you get a target on your back for the attack of the evil one. Right? That's why Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed for the protection of his disciples from the attacks of the evil one. Right? So by virtue of the fact that you're already a Christian, you already have that target on your back. And if you take up this send me prayer, let me assure you that the attacks will increase, not decrease. And Jesus was aware of that, wanted to alert his first disciples to it, and wants to warn us of the same, that as we step into this calling, as we join him in his mission to redeem and restore the world, there will be friends, there will be family, there will be strangers too who will speak ill of us, will try to undermine us, they'll try to outright attack us. And we should be aware of that, but not afraid. So Jesus' disciples, as they go out to do this work, need to be keenly aware of the fact that it can be dangerous, it can be frightening, uh, it can be outright hostile and dangerous as we do the work that God has called us to do. But notice that Jesus tells them this early on in their discipling process. Right? They're, they're, they're not even in year two or three. They're not yet ready to graduate, but Jesus wants to give them this experience and warn about what is to come, and here's why. You can see the words on the screen. We're all slow to learn right? Um, the disciples, uh, after spending three years with Jesus, all abandoned him at the end, right? They all gave up. They ran for their lives. One of them left his clothes behind and ran naked through the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, as you probably know, denied him three times and even started cursing and calling upon God's name when he did, right? Jesus knew that his disciples had to go through this process of being broken down, of failing, of struggling, in order to realize that the power to do the work of God didn't come from inside of them, that is from themselves, but came from the Holy Spirit who would live and move through them. And the same is true for us. None of us are perfectly going to follow Jesus. None of us are going to be perfect in accepting his invitation to be sent out as his hands and feet to the world. But Jesus knows that. He has a plan for it. And his purpose for us is to work with us to strengthen, renew, redeem, and restore us every step along the way. And it leads ultimately to the last stop in this discipling journey. You probably know the Great Commission. Jesus once again gathers his disciples after his resurrection from the dead, and he authorizes them another time. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, you know how it goes, right? Make disciples. 
He sends them out to continue to do what they've been doing all along, preaching, teaching, healing, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he says, behold, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus knew that his disciples needed to be broken down, needed to be humbled, needed to find the end of themselves to realize how entirely dependent they were on him. But once they did, they were ready to change the world. Um, Notice this. Uh, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, chapter 17, says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then in John chapter 20, right, right around the time, right before that great commission, he gathers with his disciples in the upper room. They're afraid for their lives. They're afraid of the attack of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They've just seen them uh, kill his, their rabbi. And he goes and he meets them. And he doesn't come and say, you guys are a bunch of fools and failures. He says, you're my people. I planned for this. Now here, peace be with you. And then he reinstates the sending. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus gathers together his disciples and he says, tell you what, I knew this was going to happen. It was part of the plan and the journey. Stick with me and I will stick with you and I will send you to continue to do what I've been shaping you to do all along. But that's not the end of John's gospel. One last stop in chapter 21. Maybe you remember how the story ends in John's Gospel. Jesus shows up once again on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he finds his disciples back in the boat, right, fishing. They didn't know what else to do, and so they're back doing what they were trained to do. And again, Peter and James and John and a few of the others, they're out there fishing, and once again, just like the first time when they were called, they didn't catch anything until Jesus showed up on the shore. And they didn't know who it was at first, but he said, go ahead and cast your nets again on the other side. And they did, and sure enough, a miraculous catch of fish. And this time, Peter's eyes were opened. He, he, uh, he threw on his clothes because he was stripped down, mostly naked, and he jumped into the shore, into the sea, and ran to the shore, and he found that Jesus had prepared a meal for him. He had invited him back into community. And then if you remember how the rest of the story goes, Peter there uh, kind of is afraid that Jesus is going to judge him finally for his repeated uh, denial. But Jesus just patiently and painstakingly peels that back and says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, I do and feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Then take care of my lambs. And one last time, Peter, do you love me? Jesus just pulls away the layers of shame, guilt, and regret and says, I don't hold any of that against you, Peter, because I knew it was going to come. But I knew you needed to go through that to emerge with the powerful force and the promise that I had given to you to take over the church and take over the world. And here we are, centuries later, thousands of years later, and our church is named after that broken, fragile, easily failure, easy to fail uh, leader that Peter was made to be. And Jesus says, now go. Now go and do what I've trained you to do. Now go without fear. And even though it will eventually lead to your death, even though you will suffer and die and, and it won't be under your own control, I will work with and through you to accomplish my purpose in this world. Friends, to pray, send me. To accept Jesus' invitation is without a doubt a dangerous prayer because of what it calls us into, but it also is a thrilling invitation to a life with Jesus and a life in his world that will, uh, can never be compared anything else you might experience. And so our hope and prayer is that you would join with us in praying this prayer. Let me jump to the end here. Um, and we've got this prayer. Join, join with me. The words are on the screen in our send me prayer this week. God, I give you my life. Remove my fear and hesitation so that I can say with confidence, 
send me. Show me where you are at work today so I can join you in what you are already doing. Amen.